Over the years, this dish has survived being buried, frozen, and drowned. It's filled with delicious fruits and nuts. It's been around for over 2,000 years, and some may say it still tastes like it. Love it or hate it, we're diving into the history and origins of this dense, rich doorstop of a dessert, fruitcake. Welcome to another serving of Seasons Eatings, the podcast which explores the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. Seasons Eatings can be found wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Seasons Eatings is also found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you love the show, then I humbly ask you to share this podcast with someone you think would love to hear more about the history of Christmas and the foods which shape the holiday we love so much. And if you want to give me suggestions for future episodes, just email me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. All the links can be found in the show notes at seasonseatingspodcast.com. Fruitcake doesn't exactly have the best reputation. Although it has the word cake in it, it's nothing like the birthday cake you're probably used to. Made with dried fruits and lots of nuts, fruitcake is typically on the dry side, with no sweet sugary frosting or add-ons to be found. Still, this is one food item that has a surprising history. It's been around for much longer than you would think. Here's a look at where fruitcake came from and what it was like throughout the years. You may know that fruitcake has roots in England, but that's not where it originated. Apicius, a collection of ancient Roman recipes thought to have compiled around 900 AD, contains a number of cake recipes, including some that combine fruits, nuts, and alcohol. Images of cakes were also found in murals unearthed in Pompeii. The recipe was made of a mix of pine nuts, barley mash, pomegranate seeds, raisins, and honeyed wine. It was shaped into a cake and called satura, which meant a mixed dish in Latin. Because it was easy to carry around and lasted for so long without going bad, Roman soldiers brought it to the battlefields as a snack. This cake was packed with calories and lasted long enough to fortify a soldier through an epic and exhausting campaign. As the centuries went on, the ingredients in fruitcake changed with the times. Fruitcake as we know it today, though, can still be traced all the way back to the Middle Ages. During the 16th century, sugar became cheaper, and Europeans realized they could use it to preserve fruits. They began soaking fruits in sugar, essentially drying them, and all of that sugar-soaked fruit was added to fruitcake. Around this time, nuts were also added. And because Europe is so vast, variations on the fruitcake started springing up. I've talked about some of fruitcake's cousins in my past episodes. Italy's dense, sweet and spicy panforte, literally strong bread, dates back to 13th century Siena. Germany's Stollen, a tapered loaf coated with melted butter and powdered sugar that's more bread-like in consistency, has been a Dresden delicacy since the 1400s 
that has its own annual festival. And then there's the black cake in the Caribbean islands, a boozy descendant of Britain's plum pudding where the fruit is soaked in rum for months or even as long as a year. The tradition of making fruitcakes for special occasions, such as weddings and holidays, gained in popularity in the 18th and 19th centuries, and due to the cost of the materials, it was a grand indulgence. But as with many traditions, how this confection came to be exclusively associated with the Christmas season is a mystery. The next big advancement for fruitcake came in the 16th century, as Europeans delighted their taste buds with sugar from the Caribbean. This new addition in the kitchen allowed people to make candied fruit. 1573 is first known reference to the horrifying plum pottage, later known as plum porridge, an English dish in which someone decided that combining boiled beef leg with bread, spices, dried fruit, wine, and sugar was a good idea. The French laugh outrageously at this old English dish, says Martha Bradley of Plum Porridge in 1756. We too might look at the ingredients of this forgotten recipe and recoil. They sound antique and unappetizing. A whole leg and shin of beef boiled to rags, the stock thickened with bread, spiced and mixed with dried fruit, sugar and wine. Almost unimaginable and probably revolting. How did the English kitchen arrive at this extraordinary formula? Well, let's begin with the quantities, which look vast. A whole leg of beef and eight or ten gallons of water. Cattle may have been smaller in those days, but still, that's an awful lot of beef. Liquid measures were smaller too, um, a 16 fluid ounce pint against today's 20 fluid ounce one. But even allowing for evaporation during cooking, that's a lot of broth. Households were large, and it's clear that the quantities were expected to last several weeks. And this is a broth which jellies strongly with cold. An important point. We'd be nervous of leaving such food lying around, but our ancestors knew nothing of bacteria. Their houses had cold larders, and plum porridge seems to have been treated with the medieval conviction that any food immersed in jelly would keep, well, for quite a long time. Added to this, the copious fat from cooking the beef, nowhere does anyone say that this should be removed, sets on the surface, forming an extra seal against the outside world. The combination of spices, dried fruit, and sugar with meat seems outlandish given today's clear division between sweet and savory. The recipe echoes a time when things were less clear-cut when the late medieval idea of sweet, sour, spiced dishes were being eclipsed by a deeper, savory cuisine developed from the cookery of the 17th century French court. Think of a present-day Moroccan tagines of meat and fruit, and one returns to this older, less prescriptive world of flavors. In Europe, a ceremonial type of fruitcake was baked at the end of the nut harvest and saved and eaten the next year to celebrate the beginnings of the next harvest, hoping it would bring them another successful harvest. After the harvest, nuts were mixed and made into a fruitcake that was saved until the following year. At that time, previous year's fruitcakes were consumed in the hope that its symbolism would bring a blessing to another successful harvest. The seasoning changed with fashion. 
cinnamon, ginger, and cloves in the 17th century, mace and nutmeg in the 18th. Sugar was historically classed with spices, but as it became even cheaper through the centuries, cooks were no doubt tempting to add increasing quantities, a fate which other Christmas foods have shared. The wine, too, may be there on the grounds that it was nice to taste, but there may be other reasons more opaque to us. Some of these ingredients were actually thought to be good for you. For instance, sugar was thought to ward off cold in medicinal thought, inherited from Galen. By the end of the 18th century, plum porridge had all but vanished, its place taken by the plum pudding. Some culinary historians speculate on a link between the two recipes, but this looks like wishful thinking. More likely, it was the last gasp of something older, which, like so many of foods associated with festivals, has become a ritual, only eaten during a specific season, and probably with a helping of grim determination on the side. Not unlike our own plum pudding, in fact. The 18th century French epicure Jean-Athelme Briassavary believed that this process preserved fruit long after the period fixed by nature for their duration. Nevertheless, housewives of the time would have found that steeping cherries, plums, pears, and figs, as well as imported oranges, lemons, citrons, and limes in sugar syrup, not only increased the sweetness, but that preservation was a useful tool in the kitchen. I talk about preserved fruit and sugar in my episode about sugar plums. We'll find out how fruitcake becomes associated with Christmas after the break. I'd like to thank Audible for being a sponsor for Seasons Eating's podcast. When I'm not doing research for the podcast, I'd like to get out and go for a walk with my dog to recharge. We both get some exercise and I use Audible to listen to my favorite book while I'm out there. With literally thousands of titles to choose from from your phone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player, Audible has so many audiobooks for you to try, no matter what genre you love to read. Perhaps you want to try a Christmas cozy mystery, the history of food, or whatever tickles your fancy. There are so many titles to choose from. Again, to download your free Audible book today, go to audibletrial.com slash seasonseatings for your free audiobook, and thanks for supporting the Seasons Eatings podcast. I'll put a link in the show notes to make it even easier. Hey everyone and welcome aboard. My name is Chris Kringle, host of the Kringle Talks Christmas podcast, a fun new podcast all the way from sunny old England. If you like listening to cool Christmas stories, traditions, and some old personal favourites, then head on over to Kringle Talks Christmas. The episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also follow me on Twitter, which is at Christmas Talks, spelt K-R-I-S-T-M-A-S Talks. Welcome once again, and I hope to see you soon. The period between Christmas Day and Twelfth Night, January 6th, was an especially festive time in Elizabethan England, and the 12 days of Christmas was topped off with a large 12th night spice and fruit cake. Cookbooks and household management books encouraged that people spend as much time as possible in the summer and autumn stocking their pantries in preparation for the festive season. 
that would have been especially important if you had a grand manor and could expect to feed 50 people or more twice daily every day for 12 days. The Twelfth Night Fruitcake would traditionally include a dried bean and a pea, and the people who found them in their slice of cake would be declared King and Queen of the Revels. Samuel Pepys' 17th century Twelfth Night Cake recipe mentions that the ingredients cost him almost 20 shillings, and the cake was cut into 20 slices. Another recipe taken from Lady Eleanor Fetiplace's recipe book dates to 1604 and produces a huge fruitcake that was cut into an amazing 160 slices. If you'd like to try your hand at making this recipe, here it is. Take a peck of flour, and flour pound of currants, an ounce of cinnamon, half an ounce of ginger, two nutmegs of cloves and mace, two pennyworth, a butter one pound, mingle your spice and flour and fruit together. Put as much barm as will make it light, then take good ale and put your butter in it, all saving a little, which you must put in the milk and let the milk boil with the butter. Then make a posset with it and temper the cake with a posset drink, and curd and all together and put some sugar in and so bake it. Fruit cake that was prepared with butter and sugar was declared sinfully rich for a time in the 18th century and was even banned in some parts of Europe. But by Victorian times, fruit cake had gained popularity once again and was prepared and served as a wedding cake. Queen Victoria famously had a fruit cake for her wedding that was topped with spun sugar figure of Britannia. Wedding guests would traditionally put a small slice of fruit cake under their pillows with the hope that their dreams would reveal their future married partner. These days, there are many fruit, nut, and spice options available for creating a personalized fruitcake. For fruits, traditional recipes may include some of the following. Raisins, currants, cranberries, cherries, pineapple, lemon, orange, and dates. Popular nut options for fruitcakes are walnuts and pecans. Most fruitcakes will include some cinnamon, but you'll also find recipes including spices such as nutmeg, cloves, ginger, mace, or allspice. So why did Victorians love fruitcake so much? It may have been the booze. <laughs> they added alcohol to the recipe as a way to preserve the cake and boost its flavor. After the fresh cake has a chance to cool, bakers will wrap it in a cloth soaked in liquor and seal it in an airtight container. Alcohol kills bacteria as well as any yeast or mold that would otherwise grow on a fruitcake and make it inedible. This process is called denaturation. Denaturation can occur for a number of reasons, including changes in temperature or pH. When you cook an egg and the white becomes opaque, for example, it's because the proteins in the albumin are denaturing. When a protein denatures, the sequence of amino acids comprising the protein remains the same, but its shape changes, sometimes irreversibly so. That changed shape can cause the protein to function differently, and in the case of a living organism like bacteria, it can actually kill the microbe. When bacteria meets alcohol, one of the things going on is the alcohol denaturing the proteins and stopping cellular function. Denaturation is one of the ways hand sanitizer works, and it's how fruitcake can last so long without going bad. 
When it comes to shelf life, it also helps that fruitcake is made with low moisture ingredients like nuts and dried fruit, giving bacteria less to feed on in the first place. Some people claim that fruitcake actually gets better with age. The fruit in fruitcake contains bitter flavor compounds called tannins, which start to mellow out with time. As the cake ages, the bitter flavors are toned down and other complex flavors become more pronounced. This, incidentally, is roughly the same process which happens when wine is aged. The topping of a fruitcake can also have an impact on its taste. Many times fruitcake is topped with marzipan, an almond and sugar or honey icing, and then either royal icing or fondant. Another option is adding a sprinkling of powdered sugar or a sugary glaze on top. One of the more popular fruitcakes in America is actually from President George Washington's wife, Martha Washington. Martha Washington's great cake is one of the most challenging but rewarding historic cakes to make. It's challenging because of its great size, hence the name, and rewarding because it's a fruitcake with lots of moisture and taste. The recipe for the cake was written down by Martha Washington's granddaughter, Martha Park Carstus, and reads as follows. Take 40 eggs, 40, four zero, and divide the whites from the yolks and beat them to a froth. Then work four pounds of butter to a cream and put the whites of the eggs to it a spoonful at a time till it's well worked. Then put four pounds of sugar finely powdered to it in the same manner and then put the yolks of eggs and five pounds of flour and five pounds of fruit. Two hours will bake it. Add it to half an ounce of mace and nutmeg, half a pint of wine and some fresh brandy. Research shows that in early British cakes in the 17th and 18th centuries were almost always fruit cakes with recipe titles such as a plum cake or to make a cake or to make a fine cake. The assumption that cakes were meant to contain fruit is further supported by the names for cakes that either did not have fruit or had another addition as well as fruit. For instance, these type of cake recipes were called to make a cake without fruit or caraway cake seed cake or almond cake. Great cakes usually contain fruit as well. The first cakes, including the great varieties, were raised with ale yeast or barm and were therefore more akin to sweetbreads than spongy light cakes we know today. Accordingly, most of Martha Washington's other recipes for great, great cakes do include barm. However, this recipe does not have any leavening agent other than eggs, which need to be separated so the whites can be beaten to a froth to add necessary lightness to the cake. In addition, many flavorful ingredients besides dried fruit were usually added to these type of cakes such as rose water, orange water, spices, sweet meats such as candied lemon, orange or citron, ambergris and musk. This recipe is no different as it contains mace, nutmeg, white wine and brandy. In addition, though not instructed in this particular recipe, these cakes were usually iced and could also contain a layer of marzipan just under the icing, meaning that a complete cake could weigh as much as 12 pounds. Fruitcakes were also popular due to their legendary shelf life, which in an era before mechanical refrigeration was extremely desirable. On January 17, 1912, explorer Robert Falcon Scott almost made history. 
On that date, he and a small team of explorers completed a harrowing journey to the geographic South Pole. As it turned out, the group wasn't, as they had hoped, the first to ever arrive at the remote location. A group led by Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen had completed its own expedition to the South Pole just 34 days earlier. Scott's disappointment in arriving second would prove to be tragically short-lived. On the return journey, he and his entire group succumbed to exposure and starvation. Of all the artifacts recovered over the years from Scott's ill-fated expedition, 2017 may have turned up the strangest, a fully intact fruitcake. It was found at an early Antarctic base camp, and historic documents show that Scott had brought the same brand of fruitcake with him on his South Pole sojourn. It was a practical choice for a long trek through uninviting climbs. Fruitcake is a calorie-dense food, and it's resilient really resilient. The scientist who found Scott's century-old fruitcake said it was in excellent condition and reportedly looked almost edible. Fruitcake aficionados would tell you that the best fruitcakes are matured or seasoned in fruitcake lingo for at least three months before they're cut. Seasoning not only improves the flavor of the fruitcake but it makes it easier to slice. Seasoning a fruitcake involves brushing your fruitcake periodically with your preferred distilled spirit before wrapping it tightly and letting it sit in a cool, dark place for up to two months. The traditional spirit of choice is brandy, but rum is also popular. In the American South, where fruitcake is extremely popular, bourbon is preferred. A well-seasoned fruitcake will get several spirit baths over the maturation period. Partial credit for the fruitcake's popularity in America should at least go to the U.S. Post Office. The institution of rural free delivery in 1896 and the addition of the parcel post service in 1913 caused an explosion of mail-order foods in America. Overnight, once rare delicacies were a mere mail-order envelope away for people anywhere who could afford them. Think of it as the Amazon Prime of the early 20th century. Given fruitcake's long shelf life and dense texture, it was a natural for a mail-order food business. America's two most famous fruitcake companies, Claxton's of Claxton, Georgia, and Collins Street of Corsicana, Texas, got their start in this heyday of mail-order food. By the early 1900s, U.S. mail rooms were full of the now ubiquitous fruitcake tins. I still remember going through the Christmas catalog in the 70s and 80s and seeing pages of tin fruitcakes available alongside boxes of ribbon candy and those mesh stockings filled with like plastic toys. As late as the 1950s, fruitcakes were a widely esteemed part of the American holiday tradition. A 1953 Los Angeles Times article called Fruitcake a Holiday Must, and in 1958, the Christian Science Monitor asked what could be a better gift than fruitcake. But by 1989, a survey by MasterCard found that fruitcake was the least favorite gift of 75% of those polled. Haters and disrespect aside, fruitcake is still a robust American tradition. The website Serious Eats reports that over 2 million fruitcakes are still sold each year. Although today, the fruitcake may be the butt of some jokes, 
this enduring and long-lasting dessert will be around for many years to come. We can't do it without you, and your support means the world to us. We certainly hope you enjoy your free book as well as your free trial. And more so, we hope you enjoy listening to the show. Thanks again to Audible.com, and even more thanks to our wonderful and awesome listeners. Get your free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash seasonseatings. Thank you for listening to this serving of Seasons Eatings. Seasons Eatings is available on Apple Podcasts, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, Deezer, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Please, if you can leave a review about the show so we can spread the Christmas cheer. And if you let me know you've left a review, I'll send you a Seasons Eatings sticker as a personal thank you. Also, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com to let me know how you like the show. I know we all get busy, so even sharing the podcast with someone who loves Christmas would be a great help. And if you're feeling extra generous this season, you can buy me an eggnog. Head on over to seasonseatingspodcast.com and click on the little cup in the corner. Each small donation helps with the daily running of the podcast and is greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening and tune in again for another serving of Seasons Eatings. All music for Seasons Eatings is used under the Creative Commons license.